Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Serve America with me, your host, DeAndre Pace. And today, uh, I think I, I'm hearing, am I hearing myself or am I hearing you? It's my phone playing the live stream. Oh, okay. Uh, all right. Uh, yeah. Okay. So today is Saturday, as you guys know, and we're going to do our casual Saturdays, which is awesome. Awesome sauce. Uh, however, what I want to do, uh, first, we were talking about some things uh, uh, that we're, that we're going to discuss. And, but, uh, but Rhett, I don't know about you, but I wanted to pick your brain a little bit today. And I, because, you know, uh, you, you made the suggestion to me that we started doing some type, some sort of a book club type of thing for some of our episodes. And I actually, I've been thinking about it and I'm more interested in a book club of our own material. I want to know what you write, the type of things that you write, uh, what, whether it be fiction, science fiction, nonfiction, or inspiration, or whatever it wants, whatever it wants to be, I want to know what goes on in your brain when you're writing. Because I write a lot, you write a lot, and so I think it's going to be fun to just pick the brain of a writer for today. But before we do that, let's talk about what we were talking about before we started here, and that was we've been challenged to well, I've been challenged to a debate, and I'm trying to convince Rhett to join me as my partner. And so the topic is really, really vague. Let me let me pull it up here on Discord here. I'm not going to share it because I don't want to uh, give up people's information. But uh, right here, uh, no, not right there. Uh, that was that was the other one. Here it is. So I so this is what we went over with here. So I told him that it was a bit vague, and so I asked him, "What exactly are you wanting to talk about of evolution?" And so he says, this is what he wants to talk about. It's, it's essential. It's essentially just Darwin evolution accurately explains the reality of biological life or, or evolution is true. And he says here that he's not great at making the claims us and that it's a very general stance on mainstream evolution. And I said, well, this is fairly broad of a topic. I was expecting more narrow focus as to what exactly we're supposed to prepare for. So to me, it seems like you mean to debate the idea that it explains reality rather than the concept of natural selection as a whole. So it's a bit vague and makes it a bit tedious. So I said to narrow it for a little bit and then we can discuss it so we don't get lost in direct, you know, many directions. He said, we tried to narrow it, but Todd's reaction to it what we sent to him said it was vague and you're still vague and so he came up with something more specific and he said this is what he this is what he says more specific living organisms evolve over time by means of hereditary random mutation and natural selection well okay but that's still very very vague what this is the reason why vague? people can't be more specific than that is because they don't understand the topics well enough and honestly the way they have it framed, I don't think is really valid because yeah. I, like don't think, it, I don't think creation to evolution, thing. they're two. One of them is a set of claims about the origin of reality itself. 
And the other one is a description of how life changes over time. They're not related like that. Like people yeah. try to make them be. And I, I'm, I, I think you're pretty much of the same belief that I am, that the two are not mutually exclusive. As well, they're a, two. They're they're two completely different ideas. That they're, they're not. They're not. They're not comp competing on the same thing. I mean, one one is the concept by which everything is derived, and the other is the concept by which things that have already been brought into existence change over time. I know what they're thinking of when they say that, because I'm not a, an adherent to creationism as a as the idea, like if you search up creationism or biblical creationism, what you're going to find is like what people think that is, is the idea that everything was created as it is in seven days, literally. I don't, I mean, I think that that's just as absurd, but intelligent design now is, is an entirely different theory. And intelligent design is the only thing that makes rational sense. Intelligent evolution can be a is, part of that and there's no problem that doesn't that doesn't have anything to do with you know whether you know you see what i'm trying to get at here I'm, yeah i'm i understand what you're trying to get at but i want to take this debate but i don't know what the debate is it's so well, it's so I tell you this these people probably are have not going to know what they're talking about well that's probably true as uh most there's nothing people, to do, there's nothing to debate there yeah it would just be much of a it would just be much of a discussion i think as opposed to an actual debate but i don't i don't under see because they they framed it as a creation versus evolution debate however i don't see where the creation part comes into the debate since it wasn't part of the topic that they chose and evolution says comment says nothing about where life came from just how it changes obviously it can't explain where life came from all it can do is tell you how it might change over time exactly so i don't know do you want do you want to accept the challenge i don't really know i think it would be a waste of time and i don't i mean where exactly would what angle would we be coming at this and what angle would they be coming at this from because i agree that evolution and darwinism does accurately explain you know how dna changes over time but the idea that it's random mutations is absurd well obviously they would be more on the side of of evolution and i suppose we would have to be more on the side of creationism but they, they again well the what do they mean by those words that's the I, thing that's that's what i that's what my thing is so very vague the topic in which they chose and the fact that they outline it as a creation versus evolution debate makes it very difficult because there's no mention of creation in the topic yeah honestly i think what they really want to debate is is there a god or not and that's, that's probably intelligent, what intelligent design to. intelligent design versus somehow it got here i don't know that's probably what it's going to boil down to is uh whether or not oh. there is a god in that case the uh, the argument for intelligent design is so much stronger than the argument against that it, it well, wouldn't be yes. a fair fight. If you well, know well, that, if you know the topic, it's it'd be a, well, just a runaway victory. Well, without doubt, because when you take a look at the 
at just the sheer coincidences of the universe, there's no way in, in, in part my French, no way in hell that these things just happen randomly from, a, from an explosion. Not only, yeah. is, not only is there no way in hell that it happens that way, but if you have the explosion, what generated enough energy to cause it? You say, well, all the matter and stuff was born at a central point. Well, something had to put it there. So the, the name of the uh, uh, Lawrence Krauss wrote the book, uh, A Universe from Nothing. But the problem is when, when a lot of these mainstream establishment physicists use the word nothing, they don't actually mean a vacuum, like literally nothing. They mean there were quantum fluctuations that, that were happening before all this took place. So that's not nothing. That's actually something. And quantum physics shows us that uh, when observed, a wave function will collapse to particles in a, in a defined location. But if there is no one, no one or nothing observing the wave function, then it's just a wave. There's no particles there. So it, it seems to me that uh, a primordial consciousness would have had to collapse the wave function into existence if they're, they're already admitting that quantum fluctuations were there. Yeah, and see, for me, it, come, it comes more down to uh, the concept of, as, as a writer in, in many respects, and as a scientist in many respects, the concept that anything happens by chance just doesn't work in the realm of science. Well, things happen by chance, but you know, that's just from our perspective. But usually things that happen like in our lives, let's say synchronicities, the way that we experience things like that, strange coincidences as we, as we call them, the way that we experience them they seem to have a numinous quality, like a awe, a sense of awe, or like the, the chances of these things occurring together are so slim that somebody had to have planned it. And the universe is the ultimate example of synchronicity times 10, because so many different factors had to line up perfectly. Well, not, not only that, but my, when I say things don't happen by chance, I mean, I mean when, when things happen by chance to us here on earth, it, it's never by chance because we can explain why it happened, how it happened. Export, but when you get into the grander scale of how we came to be, of how the universe came to be, there's no answer. There's really no answer that you that you have other than there was some intelligent design. That's the only answer that people can ever come up with because to to go beyond that, to go into the metaphysical or beyond the uh, the fourth dimension or 10th dimensional beings, whatever dimensions, however many dimensions they are beyond the third, um, is something that we just can't fathom to begin to explain those types of things. It's on a different realm of a different realm of reality to what we can explain. So when we're talking about the concepts of birthing the universe or the process in which human life came to be, we don't have an answer for it. And so we assume that it just happens by chance, but no, if we follow the chain of events and science, the way that we have come to piece together the answers to everything else, it literally cannot happen by chance. There has to be a source to everything. 
Yeah. Well, and we really can only talk about things like this in analogical terms or metaphorical terms, because it's so, there's really no way for us being for the most part bound by space time to really talk about what's outside or what's, what's beyond this. It's like, I don't remember who made the quote, but it's like Hamlet going to look for Shakespeare. You know, he's just not going to happen. He wrote the story. He's not in the story. Exactly. And, you know, and that's the reason why I wanted to kind of pick at your skull a little bit about the way in which you write, because I, I always kind of feel like God in many respects is a writer and he's, he just wrote a story and put us in it. And he's just outside of the story, looking to make little revisions here and there until we've got the perfect civilization. And we, as writers, kind of experience the same type of thing. I know you probably don't deal in much of the art of fiction or nonfiction as I do, or, fa or fantasy genres, but I'm sure you've had the same sort of idea of how much power you have over the world in which you create between those two pages. I have written a little bit of fiction, but not much, but yeah, it is, whenever you start to put words on a page, well, let's say before you even start doing that, you, you are aware of like the infinite possibility of, you could literally put whatever you want on the page. And sometimes it's hard to narrow that down, but once you get going, you know, you kind of enter this sort of trance state like in the zone you're just doing it you're just being not doing there is something to that that is magic in a sense and you know and that, that's sort of that's sort of where i want to get with this you know your your preferred genre of writing is what? Um, nonfiction. Usually it's um, I would say it, it's usually philosophical. Sometimes it's theoretical, um, scientific, but a lot of it is like philosophical and psychological observations or trying to figure things out. And see, my preferred method of of writing happens to be fantasy genre i mean i love i, I love writing uh, philo uh philosophy and different pieces of motivational passages which are usually short essays i would i would call them more than uh more than memoirs but even in the different types of writings in which both of us have you know developed into our style i'm sure you have seen the evolution of your writing and i guess it's kind of ties back to the original topic about the concept of evolution i'm sure you've noticed the, how your writing has evolved as you've practiced it more and as you've learned uh different forms of vocabulary different uh different words to use in place i'm i know one of the things that i use as a writer quite frequently is a thesaurus because i find that when you're writing a script or you're writing a story, you don't want to repeat the same word too many times 
So if that word repeats a lot and you're going back and you're rereading it, you get the thesaurus out and you change some words here and there. It's the same passage, but it speaks louder because you've used different terms, even though it means the same stuff. Yeah, I've noticed. I don't like, obviously, I don't like doing, if I, if I notice that I use the same word for the same concept, like within a couple sentences of each other, I have to change it immediately. But I try never to do it just even like the first draft, but obviously that doesn't always work out. But I've noticed as I've looked over the years, how my writing has changed is I, I try not to be quite as wordy as I have been. And I don't mean that I like, I don't use jargon or whatever, but I try to cut down on that as much as possible and make it something that anybody can understand for the most part. And see, I've been, I've, I've been somewhat of the opposite in that I've, because, because of the genre in which I write, which is usually fantasy, uh, I need to be more descript and less blunt of the writings that I make. And so I've tried to become more narrative. And for me, describing things that go on in my head is a bit more difficult because it's, you know, it's very fanciful. And trying to find the words to describe many of the things that happen without without giving an expo, so to say, it's very difficult because I want, I don't want to spell out what's happening for them. I want them to envision it. So it's it's different. Say for say for example, if I have a character in my story and they have superpowers or whatever, and they're doing a certain attack. Well, when I first started writing uh, this type of stuff years ago, when I was think I think I started writing this a series when I was in the eighth grade and I would draw an image and then underneath the image I would put in a box the name of of such attack what it does and define it and everything like that well I so I kind of find that to be a cop-out as I've been as I've you know progressed in my writing and I went back and I've revised it and made and changed it. I've left the image, but I've got rid of all of the contextual stuff that goes underneath it. And I just created a more narrative uh, tone about what's actually happening. So people can see and envision what's going on in their head when they see it, as opposed to this is what it does. And it's flatly spelled out for them word for word. Yeah, you know, when you're working with fiction, you have to paint word pictures, basically. Yeah, and you know, and, and, and it was difficult. It was difficult for me because uh for the for the longest time, uh narrative writing was not something that I did. You know, I, I we, we all dip and dabble in narrative writings, but I always wrote in a manner that was somewhat full uh philosophical, but there was a lot, a lot less jargon, a lot less uh, thematics involved. I used a lot more uh, parallel sentence structure than I would necessarily use in something that's a, that's a fanciful world. And so it 
it made uh, it made it rather dry. When I go back and I reread some of the older manuscripts, it made it rather dry. So I've begun over the last year or so rewriting all of them. You know, it's a, and it's a lot of books that I've been writing over the years. And so I decided to rewrite them all because I want to make it more descript without laying it out in front of you. I want people to use their imaginations. And I suppose that's the, the, the most difficult thing to try to, to come across as a writer because you can never uh, know exactly how someone's imagination works. Well, that's a, everybody, no matter what it is, everybody's going to interpret something in their own unique way. And that's obviously one thing that makes everybody, everybody's mind is different. Everybody's mind works different. Everybody's going to perceive something completely different ways and you can never predict that. That's almost part of the, the allure of being a writer because you know that somebody else is not going to interpret your words the same way you will. And, you know, I think that's one of the fun parts about being a writer as well, because, for example, you write, you write a philosophical piece, and in your, in your mind, you have given your answer to what's happening, to what is going on, and the solutions that need to happen. Well, somebody who loves to study philosophy can study your work similarly to how we have been studying the work of the founders. And you can study the work and apply it to a different sense. And now it takes on new form and new meaning. And if you're writing in a, in a world of fantasy genre, well, now you've left a lot of things open for people to inject themselves into the story and create their own fantasies within a fantasy. That's part of the point. And another thing about, like, if you're writing philosophical literature is whenever somebody else reads your work, the likelihood that they're going to see hidden little connections that you didn't even intend to put in there, but you maybe you did unconsciously. And then if they tell you about it, it you know, it might blow your mind, the stuff that you didn't even notice you were putting into your own work. But you know, you you know how we always say you are what you eat, and you have to you have to imagine, and I'm pretty sure you agree that philosophers are begat by philosophers, not so much by birth, but by what we consume. If you're if you consume yeah. philosophical readings and philosophical writings, then you are more likely to become a philosophical writer yourself. And not and the thing about it is, is if it is rooted in sound belief sound fact and science then the next generation that comes and writes upon what you left behind as a blueprint of what was going on in your age it it grows and becomes even more encompassing for future generations and it just continues to grow and magnify and, and that's one of the wonderful things about philosophical writings is that in each era we've talked about the exact same stuff but in each era even though it's the same, it has grown because of the outside influences that affect that time period. Right. Philosophers have intellectual offspring, you know, um, and which reminds me, it's kind of interesting. 
Nietzsche wrote a book called On the Genealogy of Morals, in which he basically traces back the origins of Western morality and what influenced and what led up to it in its current form at the time that he wrote this in the 19th century. And philosophical uh, philosophers the same way. You, whoever you read, you basically take, you take a, a sample of all of their work and you look at it through the lens of your own experience and it creates this amalgamation that's composed of, of other people's ideas plus your experience and it makes it into something original. Well, yeah, and that's, that's the, I suppose that's the writer's dream, so to speak, to produce those intellectual offspring, to produce new writers, um, people that can continue the vision of what you have left behind, so to speak, uh, the grandeur of being immortalized in your work. So I've, how many, how many books would you say you've written? Like, in total, like that you've already, like I'm not talking about like, but how many books worth of pages, I'm talking about like individual books that you know, that you've at least started on. By my count looks to be about 17 are they all part of the same series all but all but like three or four three or four of them were from a series that i started before this i actually started when i was elementary school was uh called zone it was based upon uh, my time as a child playing in my imaginary world with my stuffed animals and action figures and so they they had this big wonderful story and it was there's time machines and stuff involved in it. It was great. It was great, but it was really, it was much shorter because it was written okay. by a child for children. Yeah. I'm not, in, I'm not really talking about, cause I'm not even thinking that far back. I'm thinking like, like serious work that you plan to publish. This, my serious work that I plan to publish. I've started, I've started on what's uh, 15, 15 or so. And that's, that's not even close to being where it's supposed to be because the way the series works is there are three trilogies within the series uh, that, of mine. And in between those trilogies, there are short stories. And then I also have uh, almanacs. Well, still, I won't say almanacs. I have um, uh, appendices based on those series that are scattered across various different folders of character bios and information. And then I also had, at one point, I had started writing a novelization for each main character, but then I said, well, that's just too much. Uh, so, okay, but you had like a core series. Yes. Like the, the core is three trilogies or is one of those trilogies the main one? The, the first trilogy is the main trilogy. It's when you get introduced to the main characters. Uh, the second trilogy is when you get introduced to the children of the main characters. This happens, you know, 15, 20 years into the future. And then the third trilogy 
that is the end of the story. This takes everything from the first trilogy, the second trilogy, and then it reaches back trillions of years into the past, that brings the mythology of the series, pulls it to the present, and wraps it up in a neat bow. So what's the setting? Well, the setting is here on Earth. So but it's low fantasy? Not necessarily. Uh, it's more. It's more along a... To me, it was when I first started writing, it was more of a way to explain uh, Christianity in a more interesting way. You well, know, we, I mean, isn't that what the Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings are? Very similar, you know, but, you know, I, I, I had took several inspirations because, you know, I grew up, I loved anime. I loved watching superhero stuff, you know, Justice League, Super Friends. I loved all of it. I love martial arts. But I also loved telling, I love talking about God. And I love to talk about the de demons and the battle between demons and angels and stuff. So I kind of wrapped all of that stuff up into this series. And as the series progressed, when I got to the third trilogy and I started writing the first book in the third trilogy, which happens 100,000 years ago out here on Earth, at the, um, when before if, you know, everybody became more, more modernized and uh, and there was still spirit, the big belief in spirits and things like that. People were much more connected with their spiritual power, so to speak, because all of their power comes directly from their from their relationship with God and their ability to see things that our eyes cannot see. Which, um, which goes into the appendices, because in order to make this make sense scientifically, I created the appendices to explain what's going on that these people don't just have powers just because they have powers. They have powers because they can see the spectrum of energy around them and mold it into the different stuff. So mm -hmm. the, the energy spectrum has different, it's, a, it's, it's the same thing as the color spectrum. It has an endless amount of colors based upon how you combine these things, but, all, but energy <sighs> also comes in different forms and shapes that can do different things. And so I started writing the appendices about the energy. And then eventually when I started writing the third series and I'm, and I'm building all this lore from hundred thousand years ago, well, I, my love of mythology kicked in. And then I built from that, the second book in the, in the, uh, in the second trilogy, in the third trilogy, the last trilogy, it was, the creation of the universe, how everything happened, and the appendices surrounding that. There are appendices surrounding it too, but how everything happened, happened in a universe before our universe, because I still go with the concept of the Big Bang, but not as we know it. <clears throat> to me, the way I explained it is, is in the Elder Universe, which is what they called it, uh, this is the realm in which God created things. From the void came God. It's a mass of light and nothingness. And so when I, when we talk in the book of Genesis, how it says, and we created things in our image, well, I said, well, I'm like, well, let's explain this a little bit more. <clears throat> and I said, well, on day one, God created such and such elder God. Um, to the first one was his name was Aeon. And I chose that name because Eon means a long period of time. And 
Eon is the first of the elder gods and it's the oldest being in the universe outside of God himself. And he was first designed. He came before the time when before time even existed, he was there chronicling and writing everything. And so as I introduced that character, it changed the way the rest of the series is written. Whereas the rest of the series is not written by me. It's just taken off of one of Eon's books in his library because he chronicles everything and uh, that, that happens. And so we were, we're seeing the story as told by Eon over years. And then the other elder gods come as more creation happens, as willpower comes. Here comes the next elder god. As life begins, they need, they need matter. They need a universe. Here comes the next elder god. Here, here comes... The, the planets, here comes another elder god that represents the concept of planetary creation. And the next one represents the concept of the spark of life, which is the light thing and the fire and the water. And they all come and they represent all of these different concepts until we get to some of the last elder gods of the essential elder gods. Because there are elder gods that were born before the time of time and space that were not essential. They were just lower concepts. But when time and space is born, and we finally get to put a time period on how old the series is, these other beings have existed for eons before time and space even existed. So the concept of time was born when the elder god Kronos was born, and his twin brother Baladur was born, who represents space. And that was like, <laughs> uh, I think I had like 55 trillion years ago. And... That then after that, all these other concepts and things started coming together. And it it you know, the mythology part was so fun, so much fun for me to build that series that I started leaning more towards that. And then I started making more appendices to explain the lore of certain characters. Um and then I had my brother help me out. My brother is no by no means a writer, but he has a good imagination. And when we were younger, he created five characters that were com competition for my first five characters, the ones of my first trilogy. And they, uh, he just created them, gave them a name, gave them a power, and then I did the rest. And then he created a villain for his people and gave him a name, gave him a power, and then I came up with the rest of it. And the series exploded because this his villain character uh he ex he bridges everything together he he shows up in the last trilogy which bridges everything together because he himself is very very old he's not the oldest character in the series but as far as mortals human based characters he's the oldest he he is the first biological offspring of an elder god and his but he's unique because the way i the way i had did it was um all of the essential elder gods in the series had been after they helped god create everything god gave them the ability to create one thing that will exist on all planets and all dimensions all universes no matter where and so everybody did 
that such thing. One person created the elves, one person created the titans to, to guard the planets, one person created magecraft and blah, blah, blah. Well, this one elder god said that he wanted to create a son that was perfectly and unique, and he spent like 50 trillion years uh, studying wares, making his craft, building this perfect soul, and because he could not create an immortal life, he asked God to give his son an immortal body of, Im of an immortal life. And God granted it to him. And that's how this, this villain, so to speak, in my, in my series, there are no real true villains. Uh, villainy comes as a concept of the mind, as a concept of, of you know, acting upon sinful thoughts you know lucifer's in there obviously since there's angels involved he's in there but he he represents such a minor part of the story that he kind of gets mentioned in passing multiple times until he's finally introduced but it's such it, it became it became so much bigger than what i wanted it to be because i started to to evolve more as a writer and i started to implement more things that i enjoyed and then I started writing it more and I started enjoying it more. And over the last several years, I've been writing more of the appendices as opposed to the books themselves, because I've I've enjoyed building the lore behind everything. And I felt, well, I'll build all the lore and then I'll finish the manuscripts. But the more I write the appendices, the more lore I create. And so it gets it becomes harder and harder to get back to the manuscripts. And that's I guess that's an issue that plagues uh, fa fantasy writers. Is you, you, it's never good enough. You're always introducing new stuff, and it throws off the balance of the of the of the series. I'm not sure if you if you have that if you've ever had that problem with some of your writings. No, it seems like once you expand a fictional universe past a certain point, it becomes exceedingly difficult to avoid plot holes at every turn and then you try everything that you can to fill in those plot holes and so what i've decided to do was rather than fill in every plot hole i read an appendice about it between each trilogy there are short stories and appendices and that builds on the back of the lore it's like for example how george lucas did with the star wars thing uh you know star wars is a huge universe but if all you went by was the movies and you didn't know anything about the about the comics or uh the, the clone wars anything like that you'd be missing and be wondering well like for me when i went to go watch uh that that first star wars sequel remake whatever it was fuck it was when I seen Leia flying through space with the force, I'm like, can she do that? Could she always do that? And so you go back and you look at the comics, the filler information, so to speak, which is canon to everything, but it explains some of the loopholes that you see in film and in film adaptations. And that's that's what I do. I said, well, I just make the appendices and let people's imagination fill in the rest of the gaps. I've got several book ideas, but one that I'm the most, I would say the furthest along, and I've probably got 60 or 70 pages of it. 
I don't know what I'm going to call it. The one that... It's like a, a collection of like dreams and observations and, you know, out of body experiences, stuff like that and philosophy. The one that I'm furthest along with is actually the one that I'm rewriting. I started that one in ninth grade. So my writing style has evolved. But that book was nearly finished. It was I, I was at 350 pages already written. And I've lost half of the book because the uh, the journal that I had wrote it in, it it tore apart. And so half of the book, I've lost it. I don't know where it's at. So I had to rewrite it anyway, because when I first started writing it, I started writing it in pencil. So it's been, you know, closed for so long, but the pencil started to fade away. So it's hard for me to read everything and put it back in. So I, so I started rewriting it. And so basically I'm just retelling the entire story fresh without, without happening, without the manuscript to go on. And it's, you know, it's my series. I can do whatever I want, but you know, originally when I wrote that, uh, all all those years ago, that was the manuscript that I used and I went by, and so now I got to redo the whole thing because I've lost that manuscript. And so you know, I'm writing it, I'm typing it, and I'm editing it and tweaking it over time, and at the same time, I'm also writing a autobiography of sorts. Uh, more of a collection of my thoughts than it is actual autobiography of myself. But I'm writing one of those too. And that's the one that I'm planning on trying to publish by the end of the year. But I have, but I doubt I'm going to meet that uh, time frame because I have not written in that book in a good while. It's been a couple of months since I've actually written in it. I don't even know where I put the book at now that I think about it. But you know, you you catch you catch writers log, you know, writers writers block every now and again when you're doing things like that. And for me, it's I've 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 always done my the the bulk of my writing I've done when I was in when I was in class, when I was in a place that I wasn't supposed to be writing, because I got so bored listening to people rabble ramble on that I started writing in order to tune them out. You know, a lot of people uh like tucker carlson for example he gave a good example of uh what i think is pretty good um he wrote an entire book on an airplane uh, not one airplane individually but he would only write chapters of that book on his own on airplane travel you have nothing else to do while you're up there in the sky so write a book and drown out all of the chaos that's happening around you screaming babies and all the other stuff I don't think I'd be able to do that. It's too much. I can't do anything like I, on a plane. Like I can't, I can't even listen to music. I just sit there. I can't sleep. I can't really do anything. No, I don't try. I can't sleep, but you know, I I can do stuff, but you know, I, I try to write, but most of the time I just wind up playing a video game or something. I just end up sitting there waiting to land. Like, oh my God, when is this going to be over with? I remember the first time I was on an airplane, I thought I was going to die. 
the, they they sat me right on top of the wing, and then then it then it kicks off, and I'm looking out the window. My heart's about to jump out my chest before we even before we even started moving. And then we're up in the sky, thirty thousand feet, and I'm looking out the window like, oh, what the hell? What happens if we fall? I think we all know. And then what made it worse is when I when I touched down in San Antonio, and I get and I get home, uh, and turn on the TV, while a plane full of Chinese people crashed in San Diego. And I'm like, well, darn it. Yeah. I'm, in San, I'm in San Antonio. I could have crashed too. It's like, you know, it's strange how we, I guess it's because it's so high up is why a lot of people like are not afraid of riding in a car, but you're afraid of flying, even though statistically, even if the plane, I think the survival rate, even in a plane crash is higher. I don't know how that's possible. Oh, see, I have a fear of heights. You know, I don't yeah, like being, I do too, basically. I don't like being, I hate very being high. up high. You know, I love climbing trees. <clears throat> Absolutely love climbing trees, but I hate being up high and not having anything under my feet in order to catch me when I when I start to fall. Yeah, I dude, I hate getting up high. I've worked shutdowns. I had to get up at the highest. It was an above ground gold mine, the highest point on this construction it's all just metal like basically super sophisticated scaffolding but it's a building it's like a plant and i had to get up at the highest point the stairs are like super narrow there was just enough room for me to sit down i was doing whole watch while these guys were welding way up here it had to be like 200 300 feet and you know i'm also not a thrill seeker i hate of a passion, roller coasters. Absolutely hate roller coasters. I hate, I hate them because I, I you know, I don't understand, I don't understand the the need for the thrill of danger. I get it, but I'm just not a thrill seeker. I hate, I don't like roller coasters either. I will never ride a motorcycle. I've never even driven my car over like 80 or 85. I don't mind. I see it as a, an unnecessary risk. The variables that you can control decrease as you go faster. I don't mind motorcyclists. I've written, I've written several motorcycles, uh, four wheelers, and I've driven my car at 120 miles an hour. Um, I just want to do that. I it's, don't. It's a risk that I. Sh- it's not worth taking to me. I don't have a Run. problem with 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 that because, you know, I have a lot more control over it. You think you do, but the thing is, when you're going that fast, you really have no control. If anything happens, it's over with. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, as opposed to me being on a roller coaster, coaster. is much safer, much safer than than riding your car at 120. I don't know about that. Statistically, it's a fact. So, so, you know, I just don't uh, riding a roller coaster is not really risky at all. I don't know. I don't like riding your car at 120 is extremely risky. I, I don't like roller coasters either. I'm just saying that's that's true. I don't ride them either, but it is less risky than speeding you, that quickly. You know you know what quickly. I hate more than the roller coasters? I hate those rides that swing, that swing up in the air and then back around. I like 
I don't like the 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 force of G forces on somebody like that. It just I don't like any of those rides. I don't like. There's very very few rides that I will ride because that they're. I just don't. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I know that they're mostly safe. I just don't want to be frightened in that way. You know, my, you know, I have a weak heart. I don't want to be running around dying from whatever. Why do you think that you have a weak heart? Do you know that to be a fact or you just think that? I know it to be a fact because my heart has palpitations all the time. And I have come uh, awfully close to having a few heart attacks, according to my doctors. Why? I suppose stress. Do you have a bad diet? I mean, at your age, you know. Typical black person diet, though I do. Yeah, that's a bad diet. (laughs) Though I do eat, uh, eat, um, you know, I try to cook my own foods, uh, fresh produce. If, If I can't get fresh, I try to get frozen. I try to stay away from canned vegetables nowadays. I just, unless, you know, genetically you have a weak heart, I don't see how, you know, I, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Um, I'm also premature, so that could, that could also be a reason. Who knows? But, I, you know, I just wanted to pick your brain on those things for, for a little while. Because I, I feel, you know, we talk a lot about our writings but we hardly ever compare our uh, our writing styles and this and what we're trying to tell when we're writing so let me ask you this as a writer when you start to piece things together what are you trying to do uh, what are you trying to do when you're grasping them along for the ride what's your mission and tr- uh, when you're trying to grasp them when you're trying to pull them along to the ride what are you trying to instill in them I don't know if I really think of it like when I write it's very just like stream of consciousness but if I go back and read it there is a structure to it but it just it happens without me really trying to impose it so would you say you write more for yourself than you do the reader <laughs> no not necessarily although I do write in such a way that Well, hmm. maybe that's the way I think of it, but I don't necessarily try to just write for myself because it's if like if I'm writing about my life, it's just a bunch of stuff I already know. But when you're writing about your life and you're making uh, parables to your life, what is what's what's the message you're trying to get across to the audience? Um, I don't know if it's a message so much as a it's a journey like toward some sort of discovery well what are they supposed to discover well it depends on what the piece is um, maybe the point is 
to stir um, thinking about, you know, things that a lot of people might never think about. So was you say an accurate summation of what you write is something to, to jart the brain, to spark conversation? I suppose, or, you know, to, to, to inspire people to think about things in a different way. You know, I, I think that's uh, relatively true of myself as well when it comes to my philosophical writings or the teachings that I write is uh, to inspire or nurture. You know, uh, there was a time when we were, when I was doing the, the uh, website Ministry Inc., where I decided to come up with a mantra for what ministry means. Because, you know, we were, we're not a church website, contrary to the name. I, I stole the name from the Undertaker's Ministry of Darkness Darkness era, era of WWF. And I said, well, we're, we're the ministry now. <laughs> uh, at first, we were the allegiance or some, or some lame shit like that. Then I said, okay, we're the ministry. And um, But I said, well, let me give the mantra to this. And I said, well, the first M was like to motivate. And the I is for inspire. The N is to nurture the spirit um the, the next i um something else i can't remember what it was in nurture innovation i think it was the t was to build trust the r was to reach your to reach beyond your reach beyond the stars or some nonsense like that and the y was uh, uh, something about about your inner strength or something like that but i feel like when, when we when we do write those teachings and those philosophical writings and readings, um, the the point across it is to to get somebody to to think in a different light on a particular situation. For example, I wrote a piece called on morality, complacency, and security a while back, and this was all about whether or not the wall of uh, could be racist or whether or not the wall could be evil. And I used a lot of alliteration, uh, not alliteration, uh, allegory, should I say, an analysis and um, <clears throat> analogies to the Bible um, to explain how it cannot be racist, but could be racist if you would use it in a different sense. And so I would say, so it was tried to get people to look at it in a different light, in a different fashion. Uh, in the way in which it is supposed to be looked at, because I I highly doubt that anybody would be willing to say that God is a racist when He has a wall erected around heaven. If you're going to take that uh, that example of New Jerusalem literally, which is twelve gates out in the court of directions, so I would highly I would highly doubt that somebody would say that God is a racist for erecting. Uh, a wall so high that you can't climb over it and so deep that you can't d dig under it and so yeah, wide I don't that you can go around I it. I don't think that's meant to be taken literally, but proceed with the example because, you know, it works now. But, you know, but to see, but that, that's the whole thing is the idea that to be secure, you would go through measures in which to make it secure. I mean, I you wouldn't say that you yourself are racist not not you particularly i'm saying you as in the general sense of you 
Yeah, um, I definitely actually would say that I am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you, I mean, you wouldn't say you yourself are a racist because you have a fence around your house or you have a house with walls and an door. Because yeah, it's meant to, it's meant to keep people out that you don't want in, and allow people in that you do want in. You know, people say, "Well, things have borders, even if they're not physical borders." I mean, your your possessions have, you know, metaphorical borders around them, signifying the object of is yours. A wall is like it's a boundary of exclusivity whatever the object or whatever the, I mean, everything has borders around it in order for it to be an individual thing, which separates it from everything else. It's how we recognize things as individual because there's a psychological border we placed around something like, okay, a TV, for instance, we know what a TV is and we know what is not a TV. So there's, there's a, there's a wall a metaphysical wall separating the things that are TVs and the things that are not TVs. And you can use that example with any anything. Yeah, and I, and you know, but that's that's what we try to get people to understand. Not so much that they want them to think like us, but what we want them to open their mind to thinking outside of the box they've trapped themselves in. You know, so there's a there's a greater world of ideas out there, and I don't believe that diversity is the key to everything, especially when it comes to ideas. But I do believe that if you refuse to accept that there are other ideas out there, then you're doing yourself a grave disservice, and you will never be able to see any advancement in your life, and particularly your intellectual life. Yeah. Most, I think most people probably. So like when I try to write something that's philosophical, I don't, I don't leave any perspectives out of the mix. I try to incorporate as much as I can and try to be as, as impartial as possible while still remaining logical. But I forgot where I was going with this. Well, I guess let me let me see if I can help you get back on track. Uh, I'm very similar in a manner. I I don't write my philosophical pieces to lecture, but I I write them to nurture an idea, to allow it to fester in somebody's brain for a mo for a moment or two. I don't leave any stones unturned because I don't want to leave an impression of something in which I'm not. I don't want to allow a highway to be remained open to go someplace that my message was clearly never intended to go. Yes, I don't wanna leave anything unconsidered though. Because if I leave something out and somebody realizes that I've left something out that's like major, then that's a problem. And that perhaps poses a threat to the, the central argument I might be trying to make. So I want to address every possibility with any given topic. Which is a good way to do things because it forces you to make sure that you know what you're talking about before you start writing. 
you know, when I'm when I'm talking to Jay, and I'm trying to get him, you know, uh, to learn more about his Bible and stuff like that, I never give him a, a direct answer ever. I could, but I tell him, "What's the value of me giving you an answer that I already know the answer to when you could look it up yourself?" I don't do that because I don't know the answer. I do it because if you're, I, this is the way. This is the way that I say things. If your convictions are not true, they can be shaken by the smallest argument. And the only way to know whether or not your convictions are true or not is to study everything there is surrounding your argument. And, and if, all the other ones. Yes. Or I mean, when I say your argument, I mean the counter arguments too. And apply it to yourself daily as you read and write uh, whatever it is that you're doing. And if your faith in whatever you believe in holds, your conviction may be true. It may be rooted in fact, but if it falls apart every single time, then it's time for you to start considering to open up your mind to something else. That's the way, that's the way I've thought. That's the way I've always thought about it. It's not so much that I, that I don't know, but I want you, I want you, uh, Jay, when I'm talking about you, I want you to do the work to make sure that you know what you're talking about before you start talking to somebody that will come at you and challenge your convictions. And then now you come back to me doubting yourself, doubting your Christianity because you didn't understand such and such thing because you didn't take the time to research what the argument was yeah. and what the counter people, arguments are. Some people are completely destroyed by the simplest sophistry, the most ridiculous arguments that are easy that nobody should be getting tripped up by like for example the central argument that richard dawkins tried to make in his book the god delusion who created god which is elementary and childish at best right i mean that's like no no reasonable philosopher even well obviously and no, no reasonable atheist philosopher would make that argument because it, it's stupid. But yet, through the untrained mind, it seems they, like, whoa, he got me. Like, oh, God. Oh, who, God. Who, God. Who created God? The God that created the God that then, okay, infinite regress. That's, so, that's a, so, a logical so God, absurdity. So did God create himself? And if he created himself, then who created him? Who created him? And they say, well, God created God, and then God created that God who created that God, and it's God on top of God on top of God. And, you know, people, you know, you at, at some point you have to understand in the world, in the realm of science, in the realm of philosophy, that there is an origin point to everything. And sometimes the origin has no particular beginning. Uh, it has to be that way with because uh, otherwise you get an infinite regress every everything which began to exist has a beginning obviously but the source from which all of those all of all things emanate or proceed 
can't be subject to the same rules. Exactly, because if it were, then the source could die, and, and everything the connected to the it source. would die. You see, in you know, I love pairings of concepts and conceptuality when it comes to uh, to to writing and explaining. That I pair concepts together, beginning and ending. In order for something to begin, it has to end. And so when you when you try to separate that concept of ending from the concept of beginning, that's when you run into a problem when you're talking about the this the progenitor to all things, the source of everything. It it is not bound to end, just as it's not bound to begin. It's it just is, which is an which is what he tells us in the word. I am which that is, I course, am. Alpha and Omega, it's the same idea as the Ouroboros. A snake that eats his own tail it's the source of all things the primordial chaos although the primordial chaos seems to be something separate from the source but the representation in the single image of the ouroboros is it's a fascinating image and it's a symbol that's appeared everywhere all over the world yes the ouroboros is um one of my favorite pieces of uh, of alchemy uh, uh, pictures, because it to me it represents the concept of being a greater power. And the reason why I say that is because when you take a look at the Ouroboros, usually the Ouroboros is a dragon of some sort. There, are, there have been depictions where the Ouroboros was uh, something other than a dragon, but for the most part, when you see the Ouroboros, it's usually a dragon spiraled in a circle, devouring its own tail, and it does so endlessly. And it creates what I suppose you could say a perpetual motion machine, so to speak. It has everlasting energy. It never has, it can never dissipate. It's perpetual all the time. And so it becomes sort of godlike, which is the reason why we see it in so many alchemic uh, symbols. It becomes sort of godlike because the entire study of that science is to try to replicate what God was able to do. That's why alchemy is sometimes referred to as the God, as God magic or the miracle science, because you're trying to create things the way God was able to do. It wasn't just about trying to turn uh, lesser minerals into gold. Many of them were trying to unlock the concepts of reality itself. They were trying to unlock the measures in which the soul can escape from the body and if they can, how they can force it to become something tangible. Uh, alchemy is... I would say that it has a lot to do, a lot to do with psychology. At, at least from the Jungian perspective, because he actually wrote a lot about alchemy. You're talking about Carl Jung? Yes, and mythology and religion. And he incorporated like every subject that I'm like the most interested in, in his collected works. Yeah, you have, you have a fetish for Carl Jung the same way um, I do for Thomas Sewell. <laughs> 
I would say so. I mean, I wouldn't put it in those words, but I suppose it works. Okay, uh, I'll use a different word, an attraction. Um, well, that's that's how that's, that's that's how that's also a bit odd, but <laughs> you, you, you understand my phraseology. That's all that matters. But you, you know, we we talk a lot of, on this show about the concept of psycho of psychosis and psychology, and how that how that affects our philosophy and our way the way that we think in psychology which method do you think that you are more likely to subscribe to what do you mean by that that's kind of general so uh, freudian maslow i mean what type of psychology do you what type of psychosis do you believe to not psychosis, psychosis not the right word but what type of what type of uh, measure uh, are you are you the same idea of the id and, and everything is based based on a sexual instinct as many people would say Freud was all about the sexual oh, I think you already know the answer to that question because I literally just said it no I do think that Freud had some useful ideas but I I don't think that he was fundamentally correct in the the structure of the psyche like the the idea of well, he was the one who gave us the idea of the subconscious originally and, and pre-conscious. dream analysis, but he did not really have, he was more of a materialist, like the id, the superego and the ego, that's his structure of the psyche. Yes. But I, I, I think Jung was closer to correct with his idea of the collective unconscious, the personal unconscious, the shadow, the anima slash animus, the ego. Um, and there was, there's one other part to it, the self, which is the self would be the totality of your being across time and space. So what, what you could think of in terms, if you wanted to think of it in like spiritual or new age terms, that would be your higher self. Maybe some people understand it better that way. But the ego would be like you as you are right now, the you that you think of yourself as. The shadow is all, you can become conscious of the shadow, which is the, really the first step. It's basically your dark side. It's everything that's like frowned upon by society, but you know it's there and everybody has it. And the personal unconscious is just, well, it's just like a sounds. All the parts yeah. of your personal being that are unconscious and the collective unconscious is the collected unconscious of the entire human race. You know, which is where I, the archetypes come from. You know, I, I think... Uh... Well, yeah, archetypes are, are a really big thing, and, all, and the and concepts. I suppose you could say archetypes and concepts are relatively the same thing, uh, with a few things that are exclusive to each category. Uh, but I, I like the idea of the shadow being the first step because I've often said that the first thing that one has to do in order to 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 accept any change upon anything is to accept that they are in total control of everything that they do in their life. There are things outside of you 
that you have no control over. But when it comes down to it, anything that enters your semi-permeable membrane that surrounds your area of influence is directly a, a correlation to what you control. You control everything that enters your personal space. You control everything that you desire, that you like. There's nothing that you can't control. And uh, I definitely disagree with that. Well, let me finish here. And I think that the idea of expressing and knowing the shadow of yourself, the dark side of yourself, is the the best way to to take to take accountability and responsibility for certain things. Uh, when you understand that age that you have this dark side that has these desires, but I don't want to I don't want to say your light side like a Star Wars thing, but I guess that's the best type of phrase, but your light side or the positive side of you has to have greater strength and integrity to resist the temptations of the dark side. I suppose that's an interesting way to frame it. But the idea of shadow integration is obviously becoming, I would say, making friends with your dark side. And because that's where your ability to say no comes from. That's where all your, your, your strength, your force of will comes from the shadow. And not everything in the shadow is negative or evil. A lot of it is. But we, there is a lot within us that is out of our control. But it doesn't have to stay that way like instincts, animal instincts, there's all kinds of stuff that, that is within us that we don't understand. And that most of the time ends up controlling us if we aren't conscious of it. Which is true. The only way to, uh, there's a quote by Carl Jung that's, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will control your life and you will call it fate. That's a nice saying. You know, I think the closer we get to self-actualization, the closer we get to the concept of making our consciousness, our unconsciousness, our consciousness, because I believe, particularly for Christian people, but for everybody else who's not Christian, it works the same way, that if you truly want to be close to God, you know, we always say that we have to pray in season and out of season, blah, blah, blah. Well, the first step of that is changing the habits that happen in our subconscious and unconscious mind. Those habits that we have have to happen automatically on a, on a motor function basis, basically, without, without our say-so or knowledge. And when you are able to change your consciousness to reflect what it is that you are trying to pursue, I think that is when you are actually finally able to attune to self-actualization or self-attunement in this case, is by changing your subconscious and conscious and unconscious mind to fit the mode for what you are trying to obtain. 
if you are trying to obtain eternal glory through God or eternal happiness, eternal peace through God, then your pursuit of him should change, not in your, not only in your physical world, but it has to change on a subconscious level that it affects your physical being without you even being aware of it. Yeah, I basically agree with what you said there, man. Well, we've got about 20 minutes until we're done. I really don't have, I, I mean, if you, unless you have something else to talk about, I really, I don't. Well, I was, I'm kind of just, I don't know, dude. I'm kind of just sitting here listening. I was trying to say something or comment or whatever, but I'm just like, what are you, or what are you high or something? <laughs> no, I'm just hungry. I gotta go hungry. Eat. Well, you know, that, that goes to another conversation. Uh, what, what, what do you, what do you fancy yourself as a cook? What? So how do you think of yourself as a cook? Are you okay? You're a good cook? Um, yeah, I'm pretty good. No, what do you what do you think you cook best? Meats or vegetables? Um anything. That's a cop out. I mean, I've I can cook anything. How's that a cop out? Well, as I said, what do you think you cook best? meats or vegetables i don't necessarily cook one better than the other i mean i cooked in restaurants for like years i can cook anything you can cook anything huh uh what about souffle i've never cooked a souffle but i'm sure that i could have you ever eaten a souffle yeah what did it taste like I don't remember. It's been a long time. I should have known you were going to say that. See, because I, I was thinking about doing a souffle myself. I like, you know, I don't know if I like it. And so I hate to waste food. But, you know, I suppose that goes on to where we can, we can end up talking about some of these things here because uh, obviously these manufactured food shortages and food crises are going to, are coming up. So, I mean, I know you and your grandmother started growing your own garden and stuff, your own vegetables. Uh, what else have you have you decided to start doing on your own, the way that people used to do it back in the olden days before everything became industrialized or more convenient? Like for me, I've been making my own pastas and stuff like that, making, making my own pastas. Uh, we have chickens at my grandmother's house so we you know we go out and we get the chickens and um you know probably going to get some cows and get the chickens and get milk and and stuff of stuff of that nature and you know obviously growing fruit and stuff but uh, i mean you your grandmother you make you, you make preserves for like jelly jam things like that you're making things anything like that no but i mean i have <laughs> i've talked about like pickling some things but no, we haven't. We have a blueberry tree or bush or whatever out back, but it doesn't produce that much because apparently you need two of two different varieties to yeah, like a, a male and a female. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I've noticed 
the fruit trees. I mean, I've said this before about Hurricane Katrina being an evil storm. Uh, everything, all of the fruit trees, you know, we lived where well, we lived at in Socher, uh, in the middle of the woods, was surrounded by huckleberry bushes, black cherry trees, blueberry bushes, blackberry bushes, pecan trees, scuppernog or muscadines, some people like to call them. Uh, honey, even the honeysuckle, everything died. And never grew back. The, the the blueberry trees died. The blackberry trees don't. Uh, blackberry bushes don't grow anymore. The huckleberry bushes don't grow anymore. The pecan tree, it doesn't produce even a single leaf to this day. You know, the as, as a matter of fact, the only things that actually produce any fruit are the uh, the trees there in my grandmother's garden and. For the longest time, those were riddled with worms. The plums were riddled with worms. You know, we used to have wild plum trees out there, and everything just died off in that in that storm. Nothing's ever came back and grown the same. The the blueberry trees or the blackberry bushes or or anything. I don't know if that's a correlation to why you guys aren't able to get anything off your tree, but you definitely do need two. Uh, they they pollinate one another across pollinization well it has grown like some years it'll grow enough to like be worth picking but lately it hasn't you know i don't think i've ever had blueberry preserves a blueberry jam have you ever had that yeah well i bought it from the store yeah they have blueberry jam yeah you know, all different kinds of preserves and jams and jellies. You know, I've, at Walmart. I've never noticed because, you know, uh, most of the time when I go to to uh, to go get my preserves, I'm usually looking for strawberry or I'm looking for apricot. I don't know if you're an apricot mm -hmm. guy, but I love no. apricot. I love apricot. Actually, I really preserves. don't know because I've never, I've just never wanted to try it, but I like apple jelly. These mm, apple jelly, you know, I suppose it's because of what I get. You know, I'm, if I get apple jelly, it's usually Welch's, and they add so much extra sugar that it just becomes so sweet for me that I can't, I can't do it. But uh, Smuckers, and um, there was another one I can't remember the name of it, but it comes in a glass jar that has like a handle on it, uh, and that's what I used to get my apricot jelly and or apricot preserves with small chunks of apricot still in there. And it is delicious, I, especially on a on a warm buttermilk biscuit. Dude, I have this like severe weakness for peanut butter and jelly mixed and just eating it out of the bowl. Oh yeah, I love it. But, you know, I, the way I the way I do mine, I take it and I I take two parts jelly, one part peanut butter, and mix it together very very fine until it's almost the consistency of almost like a almost like a batter. Or almost mm. like a barbecue, almost like a barbecue sauce. But I put mine in the freezer because I want I like it to be chilled and cool. And then, oh, uh, it's just like eating. It's just like it's just like eating fruit pops. Yeah, you know, you just go, dude, it's like so good. I, honestly, it's the one thing that like gets me to get up and eat in the middle of the night. I'll just have to get some. But sometimes yeah. I'll take it. I'll mix it with, uh, you know, the, that whipped marshmallow spread. I'll throw that in there too. Oh, Stir it up. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that stuff, that fluff. 
Oh yeah. And, you know, those, you know, I, I love, I love doing things that remind me of being a child. The joy of child of childhood is so amazing that I, I suppose I never actually let go of any of that when I grew up. I, you know, my imagination is still just as large as it was when I was a child. And more so because for me, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any friends. I mean, I had you guys, but none of you guys even knew where I lived until we graduated high school. Nobody did. Nobody could even contact me until we graduated high school. So, you know, I had nobody to play with, nobody to talk to after, after school hours. So my, my, my imagination had to be my everything. You know, I had to go out and go out and run around in the middle of the woods with a stick pretending to be a warrior uh, <laughs> and a lot of that even even now i'll go if I, if I really am deprived of of motivation and ability to write i'll go back home to social and go back in the middle of the woods grab one of my swords or my or or wooden wooden swords or one of my real ones and go out in the back of the woods and act out a scene from the book and my imagination starts to play and I'll bring my books with me. And while I'm doing that, if I get the inspiration for it, then I'll start to write it right there in the middle of the woods. You'll act out a scene with multiple characters by yourself. Yes. Multiple, multiple characters by myself. You know, you should, you know, you change your voices and stuff, and like move around to be somebody else. Yes, yeah, even the women. <laughs> and I'll be sitting there. You're like you'll be like standing here, like rah, rah, rah. let me move over yeah. here, quick. Like, <laughs> like, for, like move for, over here. Like for, <laughs> like for example, say say I've got my sword or something, and uh, one of my characters has an axe, and I don't have my axe with me. Well, if I'm using my wooden sword. I'll hold it like this by the handle, and this becomes the blade of the axe, and this is the handle of the axe instead of the actual blade of the sword. So then I'm back there like, oh, I got the sword, I got the staff. You know, one once one wooden sword can do everything. And I'm do you do there, like act out a fight scene? Yes. <laughs> like act how out, do you act out an entire fight scene? I I'll play I'll play some music. <laughs> I'll play some music on my phone and have it going on in my ears. So that way, all I've got is the immersion of my of my thoughts going around. And I've got this whole battle scene. It's real epic battle going on in my head. And people are talking and then they'll, you know, then I'll, I'll have the voice change, you know, like, my son. You disappoint me, blah, 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 blah. And then, <laughs> then, then, then the wife would come in. Oh, no. Don't you say that about my son? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Such but, a misogynist. <laughs> oh, we talk like this. It's no, that's not what we think. It's just the best we can do. <laughs> yeah. You know, I used to be able to do a really good woman's voice, but my balls dropped. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michael Jackson. Well, you know, I don't want to talk about Michael. I like Michael. Like that. <laughs> Yeah, I like Michael Jackson too. I actually, I defend Michael Jackson. I defend him too. Like he get he gets a bad reputation, but you know, 
and then a lot of times I'm out there in the middle of the woods roaming about uh searching for Sasquatch and I'm just roaming about back there doing stuff and then uh I'll go back there and I'll go in the in the very bar very far regions back there by the, where the lake is or the pond it's no longer a lake and I'll go climb across this big broken tree that's hanging over the lake and I'll just sit on top of the tree and I'll sit down there and I'll be like oh this is what one of my characters would do. They sit here and they meditate. And I'd sit hmm. there and like, like, okay, which one of you characters does this? And they like, I gotta shuffle my brain and figure out who's doing what. <laughs> yeah. Imagine the character will talk to you. Yeah, they do. You know, they they tell me what to write. <laughs> They're you like, know. hey, hey, make me do this, please. I want to do this. Please make me do this. And yeah, and then, you know, and I'll, I'll answer like, oh, it's like, oh God. You're right. That is so cool. It's so awesome. It's like they're basically praying to you. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and I'm like, you know, you know what? You know what, uh, Hank? I hear you. I understand you need bigger muscles. I'm going to give you bigger muscles, Hank. Don't worry about it. I'm going to give you bigger muscles. I'm going to give you a bigger, I'm going to give your wife bigger tits. <laughs> like, thank you, great God, DeAndre. You know, I you know there was one point when count I count our uh, blessings. When when I was arrogant enough to write myself into the story, I wrote you guys into the story too. But you guys didn't have any special powers; you're just normal humans. And I was a normal human, but I was a scientist. But I was dying of a disease, which you know, by the way, now I got a disease. I'm dying of it. But uh, I was dying of a disease, and I had a I had a base that was in like Antarctica or something. And the way I was going to cure myself from this disease was going around and finding these spectacular people with these powers that I've seen on the news or something. And I was going to go take blood samples from them. So I went around fighting these people, getting their blood samples so that I could try to engineer a vaccine using their blood to, you know, to, to try to help my body out. But what, turned, what actually wound up happening was I wound up killing myself because I, I injected myself with the uh, with the vaccine that I made, and it gave me these spectacular powers, and it cured me of my disease. However, my body was not designed to deal with that type of power. I wasn't awoken to that level, and so the 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 power sort of made a negative energy zone in my body and turned me into like antimatter and destroyed me, and I was just gone. So I killed myself off before before I could even be I'm an important character. <laughs> and then after a while, I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna put myself in my story. All the characters are me anyway. Why do what do I need to put me in there for if every character is just a different aspect of myself? But uh, I mean you can't tell me that you that you've never that you never had a sword fight with yourself. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Noah has. I mean, I've had like lightsaber duels with other people, like Noah, but I, I wouldn't say that I'm like. I, I wish I might like shadow box with a sword, you know, shadow sword fight. I I wished that I could have had somebody to have a lightsaber duel with when I was growing up. Nobody ever wanted to do anything like that with me. So the thing to, is, like, every time I would, like, deal a death blow, it wouldn't kill him. 
<laughs> no one would just get back up. <laughs> it would like they wouldn't cooperate. Yeah, he wouldn't. He would just be like, uh, it's just a flesh wound. Uh, yeah, you know what? I remember doing. I remember that. Uh, I remember I actually did that to a friend of mine when we were in the dojo, and we created a martial arts club at at uh, Perk, and uh, we had our boke our bokens, our our uh, our training swords, and we were in there fighting one another. And he's like, okay, we're going to do the first definitive blow. We're not going to cut, not going to hit you for real. So it's like, well, you slice that way. And then you had to go fall and die. And I'm like, oh, you just cut off my arm. I have another arm. I can still come and fight. <laughs> They're like, I mean, you got to put your arm behind your back. You can't yeah. use it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, tis a flesh wound. It's like, oh, God. But then it's like, oh, wow. You used two arms, man. It's like, God came down and he helped me yeah. out. <laughs> You cut you cut their leg off. They start jumping around yeah. on the leg. Oh, it's like, but they're still fighting though. Yeah, it's like you have to do more than that to kill me. Even if you cut my head off, I'll still come and fight. <laughs> you just have to like do like this, just like yeah. try to try to act like you can't see. Yeah, you know. And then I I remember we were we were trying to uh we were training this one this one kid who had joined the club, and we were training him to uh he was going to become our new disciple. And RL was like, I need you to come and do a, a good example. It's like, he's like, come at me, bro. I'm like, okay. He said, come at me. So I picked the sword up and I came at him for real. It's like, and then he, you know, he parried me. He did a good job. You know, he's better with the sword than I am. Uh, but he did a good job of parrying me. He's, he's like, he's like, well, I told you to come at me, but not like that. I was like, hey, we wanted to make it seem real for the newbie. <laughs> so that's how I came at him. With a with a straight downward chop, and you know it was it was really really fun. You know, I, that's, I guess that's my I guess that's why I love martial arts so much because part of the training is image training. You know, you you see what's going on in your head, and I guess it helps me out with my writing because I get to see these epic duels going on in my brain, and then I get to fight my own my own uh image just going on in my head obviously i can't do all the acrobatics flips and shit and i can't fly but you know i just have to pretend that i'm floating around or something like that and <laughs> pretend that i have more flexibility than i do you can fly in the astral realm yes in the astral realm i can do many things you know i i i, I have i told you you know you told me about how you saw yourself in your actual projection when I, whenever I see myself in an astral form, I, I, I don't look like this. I, well, it, you know, I, I think it can take whatever form it wants to. I, th I feel like the reason why I saw it the way I did is because it was, it was just coming out of me. It was leaving my body. And so it, it still had the imprint of the physical body on it. Like for me, when I see myself, I sort of see myself the same way I envision the true form of my elder gods you know my elder gods say they, they can take any form that they want but they all have a human form you know to make them be more relatable to the characters so that the characters can speak with them but in their real form they're just energy and they take shape sort of like giant bastions of of chaotic form you know they they still look very relatively humanoid but they're huge and they're just like transparent glowing energy and and sometimes they're not even energy sometimes they're literal fire or literal literally an ocean that's talking to you 
and so but every time that i've seen my my astral form it's just kind of been this formless mass of golden and bluish energy that just kind of well that's probably closer to like it's almost impossible for us to really perceive or think about but i I do think that what we are is closer to like you know there was a bunch of like sun worshiping religions yeah they weren't really worshiping the sun they were worshiping light and the sun is just that's that's the physical manifestation that we have of light but usually light is used as a metaphor for awareness or consciousness and so when i say light body i don't mean like photons i mean like consciousness is the energy and you know Um, uh, yeah i think it just had that physical it looked like my physical body because it still had the imprint as it was coming out did you ever get into that palm reading stuff because i remember when i was in uh um uh middle school or something like that tyler bond uh yeah i don't know if that's real or not he he did like a palm reading on me or something (laughs) and they're supposed you're supposed to see a color or something and your color is supposed to tell you about what your personality is what you are and like the color that i saw the first time was like a rainbow and then the second time it was white i was trying to see red because red's my favorite color i wanted to see a color yeah, it's like it's like when when they're doing when they're doing something i don't know how you know you're supposed to see you're supposed to see a color in your palm and that color is supposed to represent your inner spirit or what your inner self is really like and then and then they you know it's, it's like the tarot card thing and they read your fortune yeah, I, that, that I had somebody do the, the tarot cards with me one time and i just was the whole time I'm sitting there thinking like this is bullshit <laughs> but you know it probably is bullshit if you think it is so yeah i don't i don't don't really think i don't know if all i think that stuff is just like out there but i don't i don't know i think it's just i think it's just fun i think it's just fun you know i i'll i'll do any of it just because just for the fun of it yeah i mean for the most part i think astrology is like kind of stupid the way that most people think of it but there's actually you know it seems pretty accurate sometimes, even though I think it's stupid. Yeah, I I love the 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 mythology around astrology, not so much any everything else. Well, the modern form it's taken on is kind of stupid, but yeah, I think hor- horoscope. There's a lot zodiac signs. Yeah, like horoscopes, stuff like that. I, astrology itself is fine, but horoscopes I think are stupid. But it is true that sometimes they are pretty accurate, but. And numerology is super accurate too. I don't know how, but you know, I also think that that's you shouldn't put a whole lot of weight into that stuff. Obviously, well, but sometimes it's like, well, that's pretty accurate. Well, if you believe that we are a simulation, everything in a simulation is explainable by numbers to some degree. Well, and there is a sense in which this is a simulation computed by consciousness. And we're all but, just big ones and zeros floating about there, man. Out in the net, out in the nether, in the ether, just floating around doing ethereal stuff. Doing what oh, we're doing here. Yeah. Well, we're, mm-hmm. I mean, technically, you and I right now are ones and zeros, even though we're, you know, we're physically in our chairs in the screen. We are wow. ones and zeros. <laughs> there is no screen. Yeah, this is not a screen. We've actually there projected. No, there's no 
we've projected our image into the uh, interwebs. You know, have you have you ever? Uh, uh, you know, maybe then maybe this might be a topic say for next week. But have you have you ever tried to communicate tele telepathically and actually have somebody respond to you? Like you're trying to speak to somebody that's sitting across from you tele uh, telepathically, and they turn to acknowledge you. They, they don't they don't say anything. But they turn to acknowledge you like they heard what you said to them and it wasn't a nice thing. <laughs> no, no, never, never on purpose. Not, but not if I'm like, if I was actually trying to do it, it probably wouldn't work. But it's just like when you, I don't know, it's happened before, but never on purpose. You know, it has, because it does make sense that you could be able to to speak with somebody telepathically because if our mind frequency our electric our electric uh impulses in our brain create waves of energy it makes sense that you'd be able to re react to the waves of energy coming off by somebody else's mind however i suppose where the science comes into it is is um how much distance does one need to be from another to speak tele uh, telepathically you know, it really doesn't matter because they're all the distance is virtual well no i'm i mean there is no distance i mean because uh let's say for example what if one of our skulls are meant to keep waves out of our brain but in the process of that it also limits the the, the distance in which the waves from our own brain can uh, can flow I don't think we have time to really delve into this any deeper. I'm saying there's no distance. The skull doesn't really exist. It's just a manifestation in consciousness. Although the brain could be seen as a filtering mechanism to keep things out. But I don't, yeah, you know, I, that's just I, an idea. I agree. We don't have enough time to get into it. So I want to thank you guys for tuning in to us today on this casual Saturday. I know this is probably not an episode that was too full of useful information though i i would say it's useful i mean we talked a great deal about the mind about how the mind of a writer works and how you, you can use things to uh, to increase your level of awareness in how you write and i think what i think what most importantly what we've what we've managed to do in this episode is talk about how to change the force of habit in your subconscious and unconscious minds to affect the way that you are physically. And if you can do that, you will have become self-attuned to whatever your purpose is that you want. And so, but with that, uh, stick, stay tuned with us tomorrow. We're gonna to be doing the next 12 of the Federalist Papers. And we're trying to finish this up by the end of this month or uh, beginning of next month. So we're going to be getting that stuff done really, really quickly. Uh, I didn't want to do this. However, I'm going to have to do it. I have to do it for all of you, my friends who love the work of GRR Token. Starting Monday, I am going to do a quick review of the episodes of the Rings of Power uh, on Amazon. You know, I didn't want to watch it because it was so 
different, but I got I got to do it. I got to do it for my token fans. I got to do it. But with that, follow us on Facebook, follow us on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, Truth Social, Rumble, Telegram, everywhere that you can find us. In the Story of America with Payson Williams, Story of America PW. Like, share, and download our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker Audio, The Pony Express, Your Sister's Ass, wherever you can find us, Story of America, Story of America PW. And we are out of here.